But welcome. Welcome to Saturday. And, and the, one of the reasons I, I kind of reference you all as warriors is because I know this is you know, the last day, last half day of what is always a very exciting and yet very exhausting conference. I hope you've had a, a good time thus far. Uh, we'll try not to spoil that for you this morning. This morning um, is a little bit different in terms of the nature of, of, uh, of the hour we're spending together. Uh, this is one of the few presentations during the, uh, the GMHC this year where we actually have a joint presentation, not just a panel discussion, but, but two different individuals who are going to team up to uh, deliver some, some helpful information, we hope, during the morning. My name is Jeff Lewis, and uh, I serve on the faculty at uh, Cedarville University School of Pharmacy. And uh, my, uh, my partner this morning is Jeff Houston. Uh, who also serves on the faculty at Cedarville University School of Pharmacy. So we've had a chance to collaborate on a number of items uh, as we look towards talking a little bit about pharmacy services. And if you look at the schedule of 100 or so sessions for this particular GMHC, uh, there, are, there are not a lot of sessions that kind of <coughs> dig into issues of pharmacy services. And so we've tried to select a number of, of items that, uh, that we think would be helpful to you uh, as you think about the field, uh, serving in the field as it relates to medication use, the employment of that, the, the, the physical aspects of medications and those types of things. And, and we're going to do that by uh, uh, taking some real broad strokes this morning. In fact, I'll probably start out at that 30,000-foot level and just talk about a number of issues, uh, real broad issues that uh, that we ought to be considering. Some of the things that hopefully are not new to you, but we want to talk about them and have you consider them in the context of, of delivering pharmacy services. And then as we go through this time together this morning, we're going to drill down into a little bit more of uh, feet-on-the-pavement type of information, uh, some some tips and, and, uh, and questions that you ought to be asking. And in fact, I, I think throughout the morning, what you're going to find is we're not going to be giving you all the answers. In fact, I'm not sure that we could ever do that. What we want you to have in your pocket are all the questions that you ought to be asking because all of the things that we're talking about, we talk about culturally sensitive medication use, really depends on where you're going. And, and you're going to learn more and more about that throughout uh, our morning together. So let me get started with that. Um, as we do, a uh, you know, couple of items. One, uh, pray that I don't trip over any of these cords this morning. There are more than I'm used to handling at any given moment, and that will be important for us. Uh, two, let me just open us with a, with a word of prayer here on the Saturday morning so that we might uh, be settled and, and allow this time to give uh, bring glory to our Lord and Savior. Father, we, we do come before you this morning and thank you for, for Saturday morning. Thank you for the privilege we have of joining together in this place for this purpose. Thanks for all of those who make uh, the conference possible. And now we pray, Father, as we, uh, as we share together in this hour that your spirit would be among us, that you would give us insight and wisdom, um, prompt our hearts and prompt our minds and may it all bring glory to you through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's important in our world to make sure that you understand uh, that uh, neither uh, that Jeff or this Jeff have any financial relationships to disclose. It would insinuate we have financial relationships at all. So we'll just leave that there, and off-label and, and other uses are probably not going to be a part of this presentation. The objectives... Uh, 
again, starting really high and, and ending um, really feet on the pavement. We're going to talk about culture and, and, and uh, meaningful care. Um, we're going to talk about uh, you know, some of the things that get in the way of, of effective medication use on, on the patient-specific level. We're going to talk about medication acquisition, which is kind of the first half, if you will, of, of the title, but the second half of our presentation uh, where Mr. Houston is going to give us some insights on, on where we get meds and, and how you get them, and, and not only how you acquire them, but how you get them where you need them, if you will, because often we're getting them here and we need them there, and it is such a challenge to make that happen. So let's just start out with the concept here. Um, again, we're going to talk about a number of broad concepts for a few minutes. Uh, think about them as we do in terms of how medications might be affected by these issues. And so the first thing I just want to draw our attention to is a simple question, you know, maybe we oversimplified, being healthy. What, what's it mean to be healthy? I mean, what are the types of things that, that come to your mind when you say, wow, I'm healthy or he's healthy, you know, she's healthy? You know, these are the images that come to mind. Um, what, what do people say? What are, you know, WHO, for instance, what it means to be healthy. A state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Okay, that's a lot broader than we think of oftentimes. And uh, sometimes, you, you may have been in sessions already this, this week, for instance, talked about healthiness in terms of peacefulness, in terms of shalom, for instance. Uh, well, that's kind of what WHO is leaning toward, although they'd never know it in those terms. Obviously, they wouldn't say it that way. But uh, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not just merely the absence of disease. I thought this was interesting. Another perspective, Assistant Secretary for Health uh, here at the U.S. Department of HHS a couple of years back. Um, health arises not just from a doctor's office, but also from our homes, jobs, schools, communities, and places of worship. In short, where we live, labor, learn, play, and pray. I think that's a pretty profound statement coming from someone in, uh, in our own government agency when we think about being healthy. So it's more than just the apple a day. It's more than just not being at the physician office dealing with a medical condition. It's what's the totality of life feel like? Well, what's that like in, in another culture, in another world? What's healthy mean to those folks? If we look at um, some d disease-related health struggles from around the world, I have some notes, for instance, that uh, the, uh, the World Health Organization published not too long ago. Just take in these broad statistics. When we think about healthiness in our world, let's look around the world. Uh, 880 million people lack access to basic health care. Over a billion lack access to safe drinking water. Yeah, this is, you know, we're talking billions here. This is a lot. Think about that. Uh, 17 million people dying every year from curable diseases, 5 million of them due to water contamination. More than 30,000 children daily dying from preventable diseases. Those diseases like diarrhea, uh, acute respiratory infections, malaria, things like that, and malnutrition is associated with more than half of those deaths. Kind of let that sink in. Again, real broad level stuff that we want you to appreciate. What's it mean to be healthy in the culture that you're going to serve? 
not just here. What's it mean to be healthy in the culture you're going to serve? How about a related concept to, to healthy? What about this concept of poverty? Now, we know that poverty is an issue that's being addressed around the world, this country included. Um, in fact, it's been dramatically reduced in a number of areas around the world, and yet a quarter of the world's population still live in severe poverty. So just think about, okay, let's look, this region of the world, East Asia, South Asia, Asia itself, um, the Pacific, more than 950 million of the 1.3 billion, so about 73% of the individuals in this region are income poor. 70% of those individuals are women. This is important information when we think about that. I kind of made note of that. These income poor folks living on less than $2 a day. In fact, more than half of them living on less than $1 a day. Let me dive a little bit more into this issue regarding women as well as we think about poverty. Around the world, women are working two-thirds of the working hours in the uh, in, in the, uh, the the economic systems of our, of our world, they produce more than half the food. They earn not more than ten percent of the income, and they own less than one percent of the property. When you go serve in other countries, who are you typically serving? In most cases, it's mother grandmother, children, dads aren't around a lot. This is the world that these folks are living in. So, you know, when you think about what what is poverty? You might think, well, that's, that's kind of a, a simple question, um, but I'm not so sure that it is. It, I think it's more complex than what we might give credit for. And it's important to recognize that the manner in which we perceive or define something, you know, such as poverty, it has an impact. It has an impact on how we respond to, how we remedy those situations. For instance, you know, most Americans, you know, Westerners, we define poverty typically, like the U.S. government. We look at poverty in terms of, of uh, uh, personal resources, income primarily. How much money does your family unit make per year? And so if, to get someone out of poverty in the U.S., we <clears throat> find them an opportunity to make more money, right? Because once they get above this line of income, they are no longer considered poor. But what about other types of poverty? What about poverty that's induced by oppression, by a government, a powerful people? What about poverty of material things outside of just money, because you can have money at this level, but you may not have other resources. You may not have a place to live. You may not have transportation and other types of material resources. What about poverty in, uh, in the, um, uh, the vein of, of education, knowledge? I mean, those are all um, you know, commodities uh, or situations that um, would cause us to believe that we have less than, we're living as poor if you will. And if we, for instance, say that you know, lack of knowledge is the issue of poverty, well, then our remedy is not 
more money, our remedy is education. That may require money in certain cultures, in certain situations, but that's not the remedy itself. You know, if we have oppression as as what's causing poverty, well, we don't know more money isn't going to make it happen. It's we want to have social justice. And so when we look at, at the world and we say, okay, we have perceptions of health and then we have perceptions of poverty, we want to make sure that we understand what poverty means in the eyes of those who we're serving. Here's one very striking example to me. When we think about what, what does poverty mean? What's it mean to be poor? This is a, a, a statement from a lady who lives in the country of Moldova. For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, and shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Wow, from the perspective, and this is just one example. I don't want to uh, generalize this per se, but I think that there are some components to this particular statement that are very important for us to understand. From the perspective of a poor person, this individual really isn't focusing on any of the things that we use to define poor. This individual say, what's it feel like to be poor? Where am I living? So when we reach out to those who are impoverished, where are they living now? They're not needing money. They're not needing other. They're looking at someone in this case. Does anybody even care we are alive? Does anybody want to deal with us in some way that doesn't, doesn't just throw us on the garbage heap? Because that's where they're living. It's an emotional state for these individuals. I'm going to dig in a little bit more deeply here. Uh, what, it, what this poorness, this poverty, poverty uh, might mean. Apologize for the, for the detail here. We were thinking we'd have much bigger screens, weren't we, Jeff? Uh, but that's okay. Uh, let me just do some comparisons here. The Republic of Moldova. Uh, I think this was a couple of years ago, 11-12 data. Uh, 3.5 million people, gross national income per capita, this is in U.S. dollars, of a little over $3,000. Uh, life expectancy of birth, males 67 years, females 75 years. Out of every 1,000 live births, 18 individuals die under 5 years of age. Um, total expenditure on health care per capita, 386 U.S. dollars. 11.4% of the GDP is, uh, is spent on health. Let's compare that to the culture that we call home. 318 million people, much bigger. Our gross national income is 52,000 instead of three. Our life expectancy is a six to, to, to ten years or so more or longer uh, for males and females. Less than half the same number of individuals dying under five years of age. Total expenditure on health care per capita, over $8,000. And we have a much higher percentage of our GDP spent. We have a lot of, of resources, obviously, applied to general health care. What's it mean to be healthy and how do we contribute to that? Let's look at, at another country. Let's look in, into the African nation of Togo. Size a little bit closer to Moldova, but let's look how devastatingly poor this country may appear. Gross national income now down at 900. The, the life expectancy, look at 20 years difference between uh, the U.S. and, uh, and, and the, the Togo uh, people. Um, 
dying under five years of age per thousand, 96 of them. Okay, what's that do? You know, if we're looking at treating individuals in Togo versus treating individuals for diseases in this country, they have a completely different set of expectations and understandings about what it means to be healthy, what it means to have life. Uh, total expenditure on healthcare, you can see some of those things. Let's dig in a little deeper on a couple of issues regarding U.S. and Togo. For instance, the alcohol consumption by adults, eight times higher in the U.S. than it is in Togo. Uh, literacy rate, almost non-existent in Togo. Um, think briefly, um, alcohol related to medication use, culturally or even just pharmacologically, you know, some issues there. Uh, literacy rate, when we talk about patient education, family, community education, these are important things, things that we may not think of quickly in this country. Uh, mort maternal mortality, uh, 370 per 100,000 live births compared to 21 in this country. Um, and I thought there was another one here. No, nothing else to, to bring to mind there. But think about some of those items. We think about, okay, we're going to go to another country that's impoverished. What's it mean to them? Where are they living? What are the issues that we need to be thinking about? Our objective, when we think about going any place, is we want to provide care that matters, right? We want to do something meaningful. You know, we, and, but you know, one of the questions is, what, who, who decides what's meaningful care? Um, in, in our world, or in, in pharmacy services, or any aspect of the team, and it may sound somewhat rhetorical, but you know, I would, I guess, I would challenge you briefly to think about how much of the care that you provide to patients is more meaningful to us than it is to the patient. Not necessarily we're doing anything wrong, but does the patient perceive the care that we're providing to be of value? Because that's what we're seeking. If, if they don't value the, the physical care, we know there's something. There's, there's much more important things than physical disease. Spiritual disease, for instance, you know, our spiritual condition is, is paramount. They need to value that care, and it's hugely dependent on culture. So we go through healthiness. We go through poverty. Kind of dig a little bit into culture. You know, what's it mean, or what it, you know, what is culture? Here's a uh, Office of Minority Health, U.S. Department uh, of Health and Human Services. Integrated patterns of human behavior that include the language, thoughts, communications, actions, customs, beliefs, values, institutions, racial, ethnic, religious, or social groups. That's what HHS, HHS defines as culture. You know, we, we kind of have a feel. We, we know culture when we see it. We know that what. What's around us? Everything contributes to our value systems, our beliefs, and uh, you know how we see the world from, from the time we were born to the experiences that we've had. We know that culture, language is part of that, influences health and healing and wellness belief systems. It influences how diseases are perceived and, and, uh, and addressed. Um, it influences the behavior of patients um, or their families in terms of how they seek care, what they expect from the care they're seeking, uh, their attitude toward healthcare providers, uh, and it also affects the delivery of the services uh, by those providers as we look, try to look through the lens of, of those whom we're serving. I think that uh, the Office of Minority Health in this case and so many others, they get it right when they're 
they're encouraging, if, if not actually begging, uh, healthcare professionals to develop cultural awareness and competency prior to engaging those people groups, those whom we're going to serve. Not, not learning on the fly, um, but to actually spend some time before we go developing our own set of behaviors and attitudes and even policies that, when they, that come together in such a way that um, we actually have cross-cultural uh, work being uh, delivered in an effective uh, manner. We need to appreciate those beliefs and behaviors of the community uh, that we're going to serve. Uh, not understanding that, I, I think, can have a profound impact on, on some of the services we, we deliver. Let me just tell a couple of stories that I think will help us put this in perspective. These actually were, were provided to me by um, Greg Seeger, I don't know if Greg's in here this morning by chance, but um, wrote a book a couple of years ago when healthcare hurts, um, kind of akin to uh, Fickert's book when when helping hurts. But here's a little story: the directors of, of Kundi Hospital in Nepal uh, published a, a commentary in Lancet, one of the medical publications that you may be familiar with around 2000, so it was about 14 years ago. They did so because of all the volunteer medical mission teams that would come and visit their region and hold clinics without any communication with or oversight by the hospital there in Nepal. Their issue was that this region of Nepal has one of the highest TB prevalences in the world. The hospital oversees a very large TB treatment program in the region. Physicians not knowing, again, cultural awareness, who are we going, what's... What's the situation? Physicians not knowing the terrible TB problem would come in and prescribe medications to the Kunde TB patients. Many of the patients would presume that the new medications from these foreign doctors, which were actually given for cough and cold and fever, were better than the medications given by the local Kunde hospital. So their response is they would stop taking their TB medications, uh, contributing, at least in part, uh, to uh, a rise in um, drug-resistant TB, uh, multi-drug-resistant TB. Um, see how that happens quite easily. How about another story? A general medical team was requested by a missionary in Guatemala. This also comes from Greg. Um, the missionary's home church in Vancouver had several uh, medical and non-medical volunteers that went in response to the request. The team was directed uh, by the missionary in um, Guatemala to three communities where they held clinics and local churches. They saw 200 patients per day for seven days. Wow. Okay, 1,400 patients in a rural area that they believed had very limited access to health care. On the second day, Dr. Hernandez, the primary health care provider for the area, local, uh, arrived to extend his welcome to the team. His clinic was two blocks away. Later, a translator stated that Dr. Hernandez, which happened to be the translator's cousin, may have to close his clinic because he's having difficulty making ends meet. Apparently, volunteer medical teams were coming to the area every two or three months. Each time they did, his business dropped off significantly for the weeks to follow. In addition, his office closed during the time the teams were there. No one wants to go to a a local doctor when they can go to a gringo doctor because everyone knows According to the quote from Dr. Hernandez, everyone knows that gringo doctors are so much better. Um, Awareness. What's happening on the ground and what's our role? How how does the public, patients and otherwise in that region, 
see us. Uh, we go to serve uh, with great technical and cognitive skills, great compassion. It's, it's part of who we are, right? Uh, we're health care providers, that care thing. It's our missional commitment, but if we're not careful, we can create problems along the way. They may be unintended problems, but they're problems nonetheless. How about a couple of other kind of practical dig-in uh, stories about how culture, awareness, poverty, things like that come to bear? Uh, this is a story from uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Christine Burney, uh, sent me. She said, when dispensing metronidazole, an antibiotic, um, on a medical mission in India, I, was at, I asked my translator to explain to a middle-aged male patient how to take the medication. I then proceeded to explain that the patient should ensure that no alcohol was consumed while taking the medication. Very legitimate uh, counsel uh, for those of you who are in that world. The translator, a young single woman, just looked at me and briefly made a comment to the patient, but clearly did not explain everything I had mentioned. And when I asked her about it uh, to see if there was a problem, she replied that she could not tell the patient not to consume alcohol, for even the caution against it would imply that the patient drinks alcohol and therefore be an insult. Christine goes on to explain to the translator the importance of this, her responsibility, some of the issues with with uh, the medication. Finally came to some reasonable uh, conclusion of how the translator might be able to approach this. But when you looked at you know, Togo, for instance, compared to the U.S., very different alcohol consumptions. We would say things just quickly here, but in another country, that very well may be an offensive type of comment that we need to keep in mind. Some of you have probably come across uh, experiences uh, in, in your own, uh, or, or situations in your own medical missions experiences about medications as it relates to either the size or the color of the medication. Um, because we all know that bigger pills are more powerful than tiny pills, right? And pink pills are for girls. Blue pills are for boys. You know, it's very difficult. We use that to our advantage sometimes. Uh, you know, when, uh, when there's a, a pink uh, vitamin, you know, maybe a prenatal vitamin, and you have the, the wife and the husband, and there's this, this is a really big, powerful pill, right? Uh, those, those are not tiny little pills. Uh, but to be able to help the husband understand that he does not want to take the pink pill because it's for girls and you, you know, use that to our advantage. But there's that perception also. Maybe we need him to take the pink pill or we need him to take the little tiny one for his diabetes and we need the, uh, the kids to take the really big one for their, um, for their infection. Maybe that big... Uh, amoxicillin or something like that. And so now we need to help them understand that, no, 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 the big one's for the little person and the little one's for the big person. But those are, those are common issues. And then I chuckled about this one from um, one of my uh, colleagues back at Cedarville, a member of our faculty. She was just helping us understand the, the value of demonstrating uh, teach-back methods of counseling not only cross-culturally, but even in the U.S., we should do a better job of this. She was describing an experience in Jamaica where she had asked a little boy to show her how to use his inhaler. And he took a puff, his cheeks went out like a chipmunk, and the medication puffed out his nose like Puff the Magic Dragon in her world. So I would... uh, These are just the things that we deal with. You know, don't assume that that they got it. Especially when we're translating through several languages... My last trip to Guatemala, I had to, I had to speak English 
through someone who knew the local tribal language and a little bit of Spanish to someone who knew Spanish or, or through, through Spanish to the local tribal to someone else who knew the local tribal. We went through two translators and I'm not sure what the other end got. And so there was this teach back. You can tell me, show me, and, and especially in the case of a kid using an inhaler, how do you do this thing? They get pick it up much more quickly than mom or dad, by the way. I don't know if that's been your experience. Last year, let me just make note uh, that um, there was a 2013 session here at uh, the GMHC. One of our faculty, Alita Chen, put a session together, Tools for Effective Cross-Cultural Medication Counseling, digging more deeply into this particular issue. And uh, it's online. You can hear that. Again, the 2013 GMHC. I'd encourage you to go and take uh, take a listen there. So just uh, to wrap up a little bit on this section, um, we need to know the people and culture that we're going to serve so that we can use the drugs effectively. You know, who are those people? And it's not just the patient. I would suggest that it's the patient, their family, it's the local docs or other healthcare providers, uh, our local ministry partners. The government has a concern about our being there, and we need to be recognizing that they're part of the community that we're serving. Uh, the greater community of, of, the, of the, the clinic, uh, the sending agency that you're representing, all of those folks are important. But as we go and we consider those people, those people groups, you know, what are their values, beliefs, faith, traditions? What's the economy like? What kind of diseases are we treating? What's the language barrier like? I can't overemphasize the value of a great translator in that regard. And, and what are the laws? Uh, Jeff's going to get into some specific issues about medication acquisition, but what about your scope of practice? What are you credentialed to do? Let me encourage you to stay within your U.S. credentials when you are serving abroad uh, to the extent possible. Then we get right into the drugs themselves. Uh, you need a lot of decisions to make. We're not going to go into formulary development today. That's, that's a, another uh, few hours worth of discussion. But uh, you're going to take solids or liquids. Uh, what kind of diseases are you going to manage? A huge question in that is are you going to manage just chronic or, or, or just acute diseases, chronic and acute diseases, and there's a lot to be uh, dealt with there. You need to have a lot of discussions with your on-the-ground ministry partners or health care partners in particular. Uh, you know, are there, are there national formulary issues and some of these things uh, Jeff will get into a little bit more deeply. So let me draw those comments to a close, and, and he has uh, some notes here that he's going to go through in terms of getting the drugs and, more importantly, getting them into the country that you want to use them in. So Jeff? Is this all wired? It is. Good deal. And I didn't quite realize these cords that you were talking about. Yep. <laughs> we'll see if we can't do this trade. I need a dance. clicker. There you go, sir. I may stay over to the side a little bit so I don't get in that mess. Good call. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, I just when I was presented with this topic to talk about, I thought about what I wish I knew the first time I started acquiring medications. And then I thought, well, what I know applies to where I go. So I go to Honduras, and right now I'm planning my 15th and 16th trip, I'm taking students there. And just to reemphasize what they've been saying in the plenary sessions, just be willing to serve wherever God calls you, because I never thought go back a step here. I was asked one time years ago, back in 05, I think, 04, to help start a free clinic in Delaware, Ohio. 
I was scared to death that I would know anything how to do this at all. I, but I said, okay, I'm willing. The people need a clinic up there. And through that, and I remember every Wednesday or every other Wednesday rotation, the whole drive up there I was going, why did I sign up for this? I worked all day. I'm driving up there. Why did I sign up for this? And I go up there and I serve and I see people being witnessed to and health care changes. And the whole drive home I was going, that's why, that's why, that's why. And through that experience I met some physicians and, and another pharmacist and they introduced me to the Honduras trip. And I was scared to death. I was like, I'm going to be asked something that I don't know. I'm going to be, you know, in an area I don't have the Internet to look it up. I was just, I had to trust God that would give me the knowledge and the strength to be able to answer whatever was put before me. And um, so I started going on trips, and then I started adding more and more and just fell in love with the people. And I just see so, so many students' lives changed and so many people impacted. And we get out so much more than what we give. I think the biggest thing we give is not health care. We give a means for the missionaries we work with to witness to them. They're like, well, you're showing us care. Why are you showing us this care? And um, I have to make sure I say everything right because one of the missionaries I work with is sitting right here. <laughs> so any questions, you can ask her, too. She has a lot more experience than me. Um, but it's always a pleasure seeing her when she comes up here. Um, so I'm going to give you some Questions to ask and some some roads to travel before um, you even acquire medications. Because it all depends on where you're going, what the focus of the trip is, and there's just so much background. The getting and the acquiring of medications is this much. This much. Because um, you can get them donated, you can get them purchased, you can get them however. So this actually is, I believe, outside Tegucigalpa. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> I think. Um, so, as uh, Jeff Lewis said, it, it all depends on the focus of the trip. Is it short-term or long-term? Are you diagnosing hypertension and diabetes and you have follow-up care? Or are you just treating acute? Because um, you're never going to diagnose anything long-term if you don't have follow-up care. You're going to do more hurt than help. Um, so you'll just give them relief, give them vitamins, give them things. Just basically show you care, and um, you'll see villages open up to Bible studies just because you're there serving. If you're there in 110 degrees, sweating, dripping sweat, and the people there are going, why are you here suffering in this? You're an American. You can go anywhere in the world and vacation. You know, why are you giving us your time, showing you care? And that, they'll question that, and they'll wonder why. There must be something to this God we serve. Um, so that's the biggest thing out. We always say we're going to help them health care. It's just opening doors. It's just opening doors. So how many patients are you expected to see? That's all part of how, many, how much medications you need. Are you doing screenings? Do you need urine dipsticks? Do you need uh, blood pressure cuffs? Do you need blood glucose strips, pregnancy strips? Um, and any tests that you do, with those results, are you going to do anything anyway? So why take it if you're not going to act on it? So just be wise with your money that you have and you're purchasing some of these. But um, just that's just something to consider.
So what else must be considered? As uh, Dr. Lewis said, um, religious beliefs. What happens if you're in a culture that has to fast every so often, but you want to give them three times a day med that requires food? Well, why bring it if you can't use it? You know, um, Cultural beliefs. Alcohol, I already mentioned. Um, I had that same experience um, with alcohol dispensing metronidazole in Honduras. And we learned and we teach our students how to get around that. You say, oh, there's, there's alcohol and cough syrups and mouthwash and perfumes. So while you're on this medication, don't take any alcohol. So you're not saying anything about drinking it. You're referring, oh, that would be a perfume. Just stretch it so they can get the concept but not um, offend them. STIs. Are you going to tell a woman to abstain from sex for the length of the treatment? Well, the next day, you'll probably see her in wound care in some countries because if she tells the husband no, she's going to get beat. So you pick your battles. You pick what you're going to do. Maybe treat them both and say, oh, somehow many people have been exposed to this in your village. Let's just treat you and your husband you know, we're, we'll take an 80% treatment versus 100% treatment. We'll pick our battles. We want, don't want to do anything that's going to harm anybody. Um, what is your team's specialty? If you have OB-GYNs, you're going to need a lot different than if you just have family practice. Um, so look at, look at your team's specialty and see what, what target meds you're going to be looking for. Sources of information. Your team's past experience, of course. That's a no-brainer. But the biggest thing that I have found by far, and I've helped uh, people go to other countries besides Honduras, um, so I, I know a little bit about some of the other countries, but um, the missionaries you work with that have been there, they know everything, or they're there and can find out. Um, the clinics you work with, the physicians that you work with there, this is all valuable knowledge. The churches, depending on what, who you're working with, just use whatever source you have in that country and tap their knowledge to find out what you need. Um, they're by far the best current reference because you may have had team members that were there last year. What happens if things have changed in the past year? You know, it's not, you know, 10 years to change a law like in the U.S. They can change, oh, tomorrow we're not doing this. Um, so you want to make sure you're doing everything in your power to, to not hurt and to also follow all the laws. So what do you want to discover from these contacts that are there? Well, the local health department. Your missionaries probably have access to the local health department, and they may talk to them. If we bring a team to Louisville and set up physicians, doctors, and pharmacists right down the street here with some tents and say, hey, come on, bring your people, and we'll see you for health care. What's this community going to say? They're going to go, whoa, are you licensed here? Oh, are we guinea pigs? What are you doing here? Well, it's the same thing as you do that in another country. You go and set up, they're going to wonder why you're there. They're not going to trust you. Why are you getting out of it? Um, so talk to the local health department. Get them on your side because maybe they can give some follow-up care. Maybe they can tell you what is needed in that area to be treated. Do they have a lot of drownings? Hey, can we also teach CPR while we're there? So um, little things like that. Do you need a letter of invitation? There's a lot of your acquisition companies require a letter of invita invitation. I know Alcon won't give you anything unless you have a letter of invitation. Um, also, can they get certain medications from the health department? 
um, certain areas of the world, you can get certain medications, like maybe amoxicillin or metformin or lisinopril. Utilize that. You diagnose, you prescribe down the route that they can get free meds. Those two are available in Honduras for the most part. Um, so we try to utilize that. What antibiotic resistance is there? Why take it if they're resistant? It's kind of like you aren't going to take a malaria med that doesn't work there. Well, you aren't going to take an antibiotic into the country that they have resistance to. And through that, maybe if you're told, oh, there's resistance, start educating the people. You get a headache. You don't take a, an aspirin, uh, uh, amoxicillin, and, something, and a vitamin. Um, I was always asked, the first couple years I went, they kept coming in saying, oh, we need these brain oxygenators. And, I was, <laughs> and we're all looking at each other, what the heck is a brain oxygenator? And it took us quite a while to figure it out. A team in the past had come down and was giving out vitamins. And they told them that it was a brain oxygenator. So they all wanted brain oxygenators. So that's where I see hurting, healthcare hurting. Tell them what they're taking. Tell them, you know, be honest with them. Educate them. Tell them, you know, some natural remedies for things. Um, all right. Legal issues. Are you going to have a suitcase and just have it loaded like that, go through TSA and go through customs? And, you know, you aren't going to do that. Okay. So you need to know how you're going to do things. So how much is allowed? Some countries have limits. Can you bring in so many dollars worth? Can you bring in so many pounds? What's the best way to handle that? Are you allowed outdated meds? You show up in some countries with outdated meds, you better have a, someone to get you out of the country <laughs> because you will probably be arrested you know, in some countries. Um, how long must it be in date? Is it just the duration of your treatment and your stay? Or does it have to have three-month dating, six-month dating? Every country is a little different. You better be using your contacts and finding out this information. Um, original bottles or not. Most countries in the world require original bottles and sealed. Okay? Most that I've heard about. I could be wrong, but all the ones that I've heard about, most of them require it. I've been very fortunate. Honduras still allows us to prepack. We prepack our meds. It saves a day's time with the team when we're there. But don't do that if that's not allowed, or you'll have you know, your $200,000 worth of meds. You guys are all lugging in there, and then they all are confiscated. Don't do it. Think ahead. Be wise with, with your choices and good stewards of the money that you have. Is a manifest needed, or is it needed to be sent early and approved? I just have to bring a manifest with me. If they ask me, I say, here, this is what I have, my quantities and my expiration dates and everything on my list. Some countries, you have to send it ahead, get it approved. They send it back to you approved. Then you have to um, take that with you. And if you vary from that, if they find something different, you can be in a lot of trouble. Okay? So that's something else you have to ask. Um, and can you vary last minute? You get a huge donation of 300 albuterol inhalers. You'd love to have those. But can you bring them, or are they just going to be taken? Could you say, oh, better send these to Costa Rica instead of Honduras? You know, someone can use them. Um, controls or other limitations. I would highly advise don't take any control anywhere. <laughs> um, and even things that are not control here could be control there. 
Um, Sudafed, don't touch. Um, well, Soma just now changed, so that one's one that they don't like. Flexoril, a lot of your muscle relaxants. Some places, antipsychotics. Um, just be aware of what you can bring and not bring. I mean, if I bring in you know, 2,000 Vicodin, I probably will be <laughs> not seen for quite some time. Um, <laughs> even, even my missionary won't, won't bail me out. Um, <laughs> so do you have to declare anything? I mean, if you have supplies, if you have certain value of just supplies and things that you're just giving to people, do you have to declare it? If you ship ahead, are there huge taxes or tariffs, or will it never even show up? So that's other things you need to look at. See, I'm not giving you information. I'm giving you questions to ask to make sure that I honestly wish I knew when I first started acquiring meds for my team. Um, all right. Do we wish the medications could, you know, walk in like the bottom picture there? That'd be great. Do you personal carry or ship? Like I just said before, if you ship, I would say more than 50% of the countries, you'll never see it. Um, you'll never see it. Or they'll give you a tax that is so high it's worth more than the medications you have. So my experience is, if possible, personal carry it. Take your 49.98 pounds in every suitcase and line them up. I mean, I'm normally bringing about 500 pounds, 600 pounds of meds with me um, for a team of 45 for a week to 10 days. And then we have follow-up care with a Honduran physician. And Angie Overholt has a clinic, and she's a nurse practitioner, can do some follow-up care and education. Um, so we don't just... Drop in, boom, here you are. Hey, you're diagnosed with hypertension. See you later. Bye. Good luck when your medication runs out. We don't do that. We, you know, um, we see blood pressures and blood sugars that here we'd be calling 911. And there you're just like, you don't have a headache? Your blood vessels aren't popped in your eyes? Um, I'd be on the ground. You know, they slowly got to that level. So they're dealing with it. And if we abruptly bring them down and then they run out, you know, it's the shock back that's going to really harm them. Um, how far in advance is this required to get the process started? That is huge. Sometimes it takes three months. Sometimes it takes a year. If you have to get all your meds and get a manifest um, approved and sent back to you, you better start early, and you also better have some good, long expiration dates. So all that is part of the thinking process. Um, I normally start November, December for a March trip, but I'm very fortunate. I only need one letter of invitation. I don't need approved manifest ahead of time. So what I do, my next slide. What I do is I, um, well, let me come back to that. Let's start here. We'll just go with here. Where do you turn for medications? Where do you get these? Well, number one, ask around. Just talk to friends, people, people at church. Your church can be challenged. Your classmates can be challenged. They can get all your OTCs. They can get your ibuprofen, your Tylenol, your, your hydrocortisone cream, your vaginal cream. They can get a ton of that, and they just do it because they care. So that's not something that you, can, that you need to worry about and use your funds on. Just challenge them. Talk to your hospitals, doctors, and dental offices. 
you'd be surprised how many uh, or much of the supplies, just the anything a hospital uses, just gets thrown away. Utilize that. Find out who's getting it from the hospital, and and utilize that and bring with you. You know, they don't. Some things they're required to throw away, or they can't reuse because it's been billed to someone else. We can use it in our countries. Um, supplier goodwill and public relations. Hit up a company in that area, you know, in your area. Maybe they'll just have a good heart. They'll donate you. Uh, recently, we got a, uh, a wheelchair for a, a child that was a very costly. It was about $5,000 unique wheelchair, and it was just donated. We were thinking maybe we'd get it at a, at a discounted cost. We could get some donors to help us. They just gave it to us. God works. God uses these people. Um, and we're just like, wow, seriously, you're giving us this. And it was really neat. Um, supplier good, or uh, big-hearted people want to help. Just challenge others. Show them your pictures. Show them what you're, where you're going. Uh, one picture will touch everybody's heart. It really does. Um, so acquisition of medication and supplies. If you walk through the exhibit hall, you will see many, many, many organizations that do great work. And there will be some that work great for you and where you're going, and there may be others that may work better. Research early, talk to them, see what their turnaround time is, see what their expiration dates are. All this is important. You know, I can't endorse any of them. One, I'm not allowed to, but two. <laughs> um, I've worked with so many of them over the years that I've got some good friendships with some of them. And I know their turnaround time. I know some that I can do, hey, last minute, phone call. Hey, can you get me something within three days? Um, so what I always do is I will go through and find all my resources from my contacts at home. How many OTCs? How many things can I get that way? Then I will go to organizations like these, and I will say, okay, what can I get in either free or at very, very small cost? And I acquire all that. Then I will look at who has some package deals. Okay, most bang for my buck. And I'll look at those. And there's certain ones that you can only get once a year as a physician. There's certain ones that you can get twice a year. So research early um, and find out what the requirements are, letter of invitation or whatever. And then once I've done that, I've got all that. I make my formulary. I say, where are my gaps? What am I missing? What, what did my team tell me they had as a want, a need, and a absolute? Okay, have I done all my absolutes? Have to do those. Okay. Then I look down, okay, how much money do I have left? What's next? What am I missing? Oh, I only have one in this category of hypertension. I should broaden that a hair. Um, or I only have one of this type. I only have more gram-positive. Oh, I better have some gram-negative antibiotics. I just make sure I have a well-balanced formulary. Then I go to my ordering companies say, okay, who can I purchase from at discount? Who is my fastest turnaround, best expiration dates? And then I look at them, and then I say, okay, I'm filling in the gaps of my formulary. Now I have coverage of a good, well-balanced formulary for my nurse practitioners, my physicians, my students to be able to look at and review. And I, I would suggest if you create a formulary, always put the, the – normal dosages on that along with it because about day three in 110 degree heat 
your brain starts to melt and you're exhausted. And so you're looking, you're like, oh, yeah, that's 5 to 10 milligrams normal. The, you know, this was written for 50. Hmm, let me go talk to that physician. <laughs> um, are, just anything you can do to put a, another safety measure in it, do it. And um, like I said, there's not a surefire method anywhere you're going. You have to research early. You have to ask these questions and utilize the people on the ground. Okay. So I'm sorry I'm not giving you answers. I'm giving you questions. But if I would have known a lot of these questions when I first started years ago, it would have really helped me. Because I was scrambling, oh, I'll get this from here, this from here, this from here. Oh, no, I have overlap. Oh, I don't want that. I'd rather have that money here and fill my gap. So I just do stepwise approach. And um, honestly, I just, number one thing I start with is getting my prayer support because everything else falls into place. I couldn't find albendazole anywhere in the world one time. And finally found it at a, a Mennonite company in Sweden or Norway or something. I was like, how did I even come across that? God provided. I, an ad came on my screen as I was looking at somewhere else. I was like, wow. So um, you never know. Um, so just ask all those questions, and it will be a lot better, safer, smoother trip. So like I said, one picture will touch people's hearts, and uh, they'll want to help. So I think we're opening up for questions. I think we're oh. dismissed, but we'll, we'll all right. for questions. Honestly, my answer with that one is if I can some feedback there. If I can give a vitamin, I will. And my thought isn't is it benefiting them? It's showing God's love and opening the door for the missionaries. It's like hey, they came here, spent time with me. I did get something out of it. It's not going to harm them. It opens the door for them to, for, for witnessing, honestly. If they get something out of, out of you, a lot of times they just think that is another step of care that you're showing them. That's a good question, though. And I think, any other questions? I think we're done, time-wise. Thank you, guys.